Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. Ryan, it's another podcast. Pam, it is. And I tell you, um, I, I I love these days when we have podcasts. I know. And how exciting do it is for us to have two guests today. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pulling out the, the rare card, right? So we're, we normally have one guest. Uh, today, we've got two guests. Um, that doesn't happen very often, right? No, it doesn't. So yeah, super excited. Well, let's just jump right in. We're going to have a lot to talk about. Uh, the, the, let me introduce one of our, our, our uh, guests first is uh, Dr. Melina Gold. Uh, Dr. Gold is a uh, associate professor of medicine and gastroenterology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And uh, Dr. Gold is going to be our, our expert, as we always say, right? And uh, of course, uh, being a gastroenterologist, we're going to be talking about colon cancer. So Dr. Gold, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Well, fantastic. And we're super glad that you're here. And now let me introduce Pam and to our listeners, our other guest, uh, super excited. Allison Rosen uh, has a really long and important uh, bio here. I want to make sure we get all of these things. Not that Dr. Gold's is, of course, less important, but we all know physician. Um, Allison is a patient community and policy and research advocate for the collective adolescent and young adult cancer and the colorectal communities specifically, so the AYA uh, group. Uh, she's worked in the world of oncology for over 16 years, and in 2012, at the age of 32, um, after years of struggling with Crohn's disease, her life was totally disrupted when a colonoscopy, which we'll talk about colonoscopies, uh, revealed stage two colorectal cancer. She's now been cancer-free, congratulations, for nine years, and uh, volunteers her time on committees for young adult and colorectal cancer patients with groups working on effective patient experience, social media, and outreach initiatives. Uh, she's very active in policy work at the state and national level, which is really cool. Um, she's a public speaker, which is why we have her today, board member and volunteer for local, regional, regional and national organizations, as well as nonprofits. She's deliberately and consciously chosen to dedicate her life in and outside of her employment to use her voice and platform to educate, advocate, and continuously learn how best to represent the collective AYA community through her own experience surviving stage two colorectal cancer, uh, one of which we'll talk about soon too is TikTok. So uh, we're super excited about all of that. Um, she has experience on both sides of the fence and works to bridge the gap between healthcare system and the communities it serves, which we know is incredibly important. Allison, how are you? I am. I am absolutely great. That's a that's a big handful of, of information. <laughs> Basically, I am someone that has worked in oncology that got diagnosed with colorectal cancer and just wants to help improve the lives of future patients, current patients, and and help the medical community at the same time. So everyone um, has as can prevent. We can prevent colorectal cancer, and then if someone gets it we can help improve it um, on both sides of the fence. So yeah. I'm great this morning. Awesome. Well, thank, you. 
it sounds like we have two really smart people on our podcast, um, but I think we should start with the basics. That's right, as we always like to do. So let's just kind of talk, Dr. Gold, about the risk factors and maybe some ways to reduce uh, the risk of colorectal cancer. All right, well, we'll start with that. I think that's a great place to start. Um, so I think one thing I want to emphasize before I even dive into that is that you may not have any known risk factors, and that's why screening is so important. So I will talk about things that put us at increased risk, but I want everyone to realize that they should still get screened, even if they don't have these risk factors. I think that's probably the most important point. So um, like Allison said, she had Crohn's disease. Um, that's one of the risk factors. So having inflammatory bowel disease, which can be either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, if it involves the colon, that can be a risk factor. Um, having had a history of polyps or colon cancer in the past can be a risk factor for developing colon cancer or having colon cancer again. If you have a family history, that's also a risk factor. And there are some genetic syndromes that are put you at greater risk. Um, actually, type 2 diabetes does as well. Um, and obesity can as well. And then there's some dietary factors, which Alice and I often talk about. So high fat diets and particularly processed um, red meats are risk factors. Um, so those are things that you can actually alter, right? So if you have obesity or you have diabetes, you can get those under better control. If you eat a lot of processed meats, you can decrease that. Um, it's thought that increased physical activity helps reduce your risk. Um, and then excessive alcohol and smoking can increase your risk. Um, so trying to kind of modify those as well. Um, so those are those are sort of the big risk factors. Um, a lot of people think it's a male disease. It's actually almost as common in women as men. Um, so that's important for everybody to know. It is more common in African-Americans and um, Alaska Natives and Ashkenazi Jews. So those groups should have very careful screening. Um, but at this point in time, we're recommending everybody get screened at age 45, unless they have additional risk factors, that means that they should get screened at an earlier age. So Allison, how long had you suffered from Crohn's disease before being diagnosed? I was diagnosed with Crohn's at the age of 12, so almost 20 years of, of dealing with Crohn's disease. And, and what's ironic and, and also sort of goes along with what um, Dr. Gould said, was I was having a colonoscopy every year. Um, I had had the cleanest colonoscopy of my life a year and a half earlier before diagnosis. So I was in remission for about, I'm gonna say five years. So everything was under control. I was the healthiest I had been. I was working out all the time. So um, I could have easily skipped that screening. Um, you know, what prompted me to get that colonoscopy were, you know, I, I just, I would felt, felt unwell. I, I felt fatigued. Um, a lot of the, and I, I know we'll go into probably the symptoms of colorectal cancer, but a lot of the traditional symptoms of colorectal cancer for me, fatigued blood in my stool, which was relatively normal for me, but it was sort of increased um, blood in my stool. Change in my bowel habits was a big sign for me. I was not going as often. I felt constipated. I felt like food was sort of stuck inside me. Um, and uh, I was anemic. I've always been anemic, but um, you know, my my normal scan, my normal test blood results came up a little bit more anemic than normal. So really paying attention to my body, I was already doing that. You know, having had Crohn's for so long, but I had no idea that I could um, get colorectal cancer. That was never sort of mentioned. I know I read all my labels and all the medicines I'd taken over time, and um, I think uh, like leukemia or or a sort of um, 
other different types of cancers. Oh, is it lymphoma? I think lymphoma is listed on some of those those drugs as as being something you could potentially get. But um, I knew some, but I did not know everything, and I really had no idea that younger people could get colorectal cancer. I thought it was an old man's disease, um, and so now I know a lot more um, and educate about the importance of screening because really, like um, was mentioned earlier, screening can help save your life. Because I got that colonoscopy when I did. I was told it, it basically saved my life because I had the clean one, like again, a beautiful colonoscopy a year and a half earlier. And then it was stage two colorectal cancer. And they said it was about to break through my colon. So it was relatively aggressive. Um, I don't, you know, you never know, um, but you know, stage two is much better than stage three or stage four. So listening to my body and having that screening really saved my life. You know, Pam, this is one of those moments we should, we should pause right here. And th this is a perfect interlude to remind people just exactly what Dr. Gould and Dr. And, and Allison said was don't skip your screenings. You know, I know, I know it's crazy right now with COVID and, you know, you think, oh, I don't want to go to the hospital or I don't want to go to the doctor's office or I don't want to go to the surgery center. I don't want to go get my mammogram. I don't want to go, you know, no, 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 don't do that. Uh, how many times, Pam, have you heard, I know I've heard, and we just now heard another one of, I, in this case, Allison didn't skip, but how many times have we heard, I skipped a mammogram because ah, everything is fine, or I skipped a colonoscopy because everything's fine, I didn't want to mess with it, and then lo and behold, they start to have symptoms, and, and it's progressed. I think we hear that very often, and speaking of uh, screenings, what, and symptoms, what kind of symptoms do people have with colorectal cancer? So I'll, I can start talking about it and Allison can chime in if she wants. She already alluded to some of it, right? Like something wasn't feeling right. It wasn't feeling like the food was passing through. A lot of times patients will complain of change in their bowel habits. So something will be different from before. They may have what we call like pencil thin stools where their bowel movements are super thin. They may notice some blood in the stool, or they may have symptoms of anemia, which means that their blood count is really low, and so they're tired. Um, and when we check their their blood counts, that we see that they're anemic, that their blood count is low. Those are the most common um, symptoms that we see. Again, they may not have any symptoms, which is why we really emphasize screening, or they may not have symptoms until later on. Yeah, and I think the only thing I'll add is that if, if no matter what age, if you think something is a little bit off with um, you know, you know your body better than anybody else. People, you don't talk to people necessarily about how often you go to the bathroom or not. But, you know, if you're constipated or if you're going more often or if you have, you know, again, abdominal pain or all the things that the doctor Gould mentioned, you can't ignore that. You have to talk to your doctor. And, you know, screening is the easiest thing that you can do for yourself to help ease your mind about what it might be. Um, you know, oftentimes people blow, I've heard many, many survivors and patients say, um, oh, I just figured it was hemorrhoids or something. It could be, um, of course, but essentially getting screened to, to help figure out what it might be um, is, is life-saving. I agree. Oh, sorry. What about unexplained weight loss? Yeah, so that could definitely be colon cancer, um, but it can be a lot of things. So if you have unexplained weight loss, you need to get that evaluated. Um, it can be, you know, there's various disorders that can cause that, but it's certainly something that can be associated with colon cancer. And back to Allison's point, um, we I recently had a colleague who passed away from colon cancer who had 
bleeding um, in med school and initially it was chalked up to hemorrhoids. So by the time he was diagnosed, it was much later. And even though he you know, advocated for himself and knew, I think it's just so important to bring that point home that especially for our young patients, that, that it may be normal or hemorrhoids like Allison said, but you really need to have someone take a look. And so that's really, really important, especially now that we're seeing more young people um, have colorectal cancer. If Why do you if, if there's one thing that I can tell we've, we've seen at the survivorship center is the younger and younger and younger folks are getting diagnosed with all cancers. And so, you know, I know Allison, just as you said, someone and so many of our listeners are probably, you know, agreeing. I thought it was an older disease. It's not playing by those rules anymore. And so, as as you know, you know best if you start to have symptoms. And then I think the other thing that, that Allison, I'm interested to, to hear you discuss and talk about is sometimes these can be uncomfortable discussions to have. From a from a patient standpoint, not a physician, because Dr. Gold, you you deal with this. This is your area of expertise. But maybe from a patient standpoint, it's like I don't really want to talk about that. Can, yeah, can you speak to that? I mean, it's funny because we talk about so many different things in life. We talk about you know, especially if if you're younger or even older and have kids, you talk about oh, they're throwing up or their stomach their stomach hurts. The best thing you can do is talk about what's going on with your body. You know, I think colorectal cancer is like. Oh, people don't want to talk about their backside, going to the bathroom, but it's something we do every day. And it's something that you're in tune to every day. So if something changes, you need to have that conversation. If you're a little embarrassed, just remember your doctor's not embarrassed. And that embarrassment could, I mean, I, I'm going to say it again, having that conversation could essentially save your life. You can be there for your, your child's graduation. You can be there for so many things. So the best thing you can do um, as a patient or someone that notices something is be your own best advocate. You're the only person that knows what goes on in that bathroom. So if something seems weird, you know, it's not an embarrassing conversation. The whole idea behind what Dr. Gould and I do when we go and we talk, uh, you know, about colorectal cancer is try to break that stigma that exists because it shouldn't exist. It's something we do daily, just like we brush our teeth, we go to the bathroom. If it's not normal, not regular, something is, is probably going on. So why do you feel like there's more younger people getting diagnosed? I, I will let Dr. Gould start. It's a million start. dollar question, Pam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, from, from my standpoint, um, I know that we're not eating as well. You know, processed food or something that I lived on in college, you know, rarely do, I mean, I cook now, not as often as I would like, you know, we're not as active, you know, we're stuck on our computers or on our phone or, like it's, you know, there's, there's, there's probably, I know there's scientific, you know, reasoning or at least some, some ideas as to why, but with the younger population, we, we often um, aren't as healthy as we should be. We don't take our health as serious as we should be. And again, like there's so much processed food, rarely, you know, in college did I actually go out to eat or cook. So when you start eating really bad, you know, pop tarts and, you know, all this stuff that has names or ingredients that you don't understand. I think that definitely affected my, you know, my, my bowels, my colon, my, my you know, about habits and, and everything that I was going through. It, sometimes if you cut out certain things in your diet, you'll see that you have more energy. You, you know, it just, it, there's so many benefits to eating well and working out. And for me, it's, it's 20 or 30 minutes a day now. And back then I was, I was finally taking my health serious and I was drinking 
Um, in college, I drank, I don't say heavily, but you know, when you go out with your friends and you party, you're drinking. Sometimes you think it's cool to smoke. I didn't, but all the things that were mentioned that are in your control, I think the younger population are probably doing that in excess more so than maybe 20, 30 years ago. And you're right. It is the million dollar question. Um, I don't think we have, you know, one single answer, but like Allison said, it's probably multi multiple things that can cause that. Um, the other thing people are looking at, which has a lot to do with what we eat is the microbiome. So um, that's, that's sort of the hot topic right now, um, which is heavily influenced by by what we eat and how we live our lives. So that's where we're thinking, but people are looking at all sorts of factors to try to explain this trend. The, the gut is very important, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it, it, you know, and, and those are things too, Pam, that we talk about, right? At the Survivorship Center with Whitney, uh, mm -hmm. We work with a dietitian, a registered dietitian, and uh, talk about healthy eating habits. We talk about, um, you know, ways to substitute things instead of this or that, use this instead, and, you know, uh, avoiding uh, processed foods, which is a huge, huge piece, and having more of a plant-based diet, which, which is interesting because people may go, oh my gosh, no, no, I'm not going, I'm not going vegetarian. Well, plant-based is not entirely vegetarian. So we want to make sure that's out there. But um, if you have questions about that, easily, easiest thing to do is to go back and find one of our earlier podcasts with Whitney uh, from season one, talking about a plant-based diet. But um, the diet is a huge thing. And we are, you're right, Allison, we are a, a fast-paced society and you know, we go from work to home to baseball practice to soccer practice to dance recitals to finally getting to, you know, eat something on the way home in the car. And um, maybe those aren't always the best choices. Yeah, I mean, I, I spend time on Sundays. You spend a little bit of extra time preparing that stuff ahead of time. Then you just grab the the thing with some, some you know, a hard boiled egg or some vegetables. Like it's it's sort of thinking ahead because so often I'm driving and I'm like, oh, I'm really hungry. I could go get a cheeseburger from a fast food restaurant. Well, I don't. I, I stop myself from thinking that because you don't know what's in that stuff. I mean, I'm guilty just like everyone else. I will have fast food every once in a while. I'm not saying like you don't, you shouldn't have fast food ever. But really, if you like plan ahead um, and make it like if you have children, make it fun, make little bento boxes with them. So you're making them them healthy foods at the same time you're making that for yourself as well. I mean, it's, it's something I do on Sunday, you know, it's my errand day, my meal prep day, so that like if I'm at work and, you know, I'm hungry, I reach for that instead of going downstairs and, you know, eating something, something greasy. Again, like it, everything in moderation, so I don't keep myself from eating, eating fast food every once in a while, but really now that I plan ahead and I make chicken and I make fish and, you know, make fresh vegetables, like I like to have a very colorful plate. It's, I'm sure that's what, you know, um, yeah. Whitney said, like a colorful plate is, is a healthy plate and, and it doesn't take that much time. And if you make it fun, especially if you have children, it's, it's super easy and it's only beneficial to you. It can't be bad. Right. You know, we uh, like to prepare for everything. So let's talk about um, screenings. What type of screenings are out there? and how can we prepare ourselves for them? So um, there are several types of screenings. We, probably the one that's most commonly discussed is the colonoscopy, um, maybe also most commonly feared, I'm not sure. Um, but that's one screening. Um, 
you know, Allison's gone through it several times, so she can attest to the test. Um, As have I. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So uh, that test is involved in that it requires a full preparation. You often get sedated, so someone will need to drive you home on the day of the test. Um, but the good news is if you have a relatively normal test, you may not need one for another 10 years. Um, there are other types of tests. There's stool-based tests. There's one that we do annually every year that looks for presence of blood in the stool. If that's positive, then you will require also a colonoscopy. Um, but some people prefer to do that because they can do it in the comfort of their own home. And then there's the new, or you've probably seen advertisements. It's a stool-based test called ColoGuard. It has, um, it looks for blood as well as the presence of abnormal um, cells. And that test you would do every three years. Again, if that's positive, then that would require a colonoscopy. Those are sort of the main tests. There are some variations on it. There's a CT version where you can do a, 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 a CT scan, but you also prep for that. Um, the bottom line is any of those are positive. Aside from the colonoscopy, you will need a colonoscopy. But the other um, important thing for us is that we just want you to get screened. So whatever way you feel comfortable um, is fine, unless you have one of the risk factors, particularly if you have family history, uh, you may need to have a colonoscopy. Or if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you would need a colonoscopy as opposed to the other tests. Um, but if you are average risk, we would just like that you get one form of screening um, just to know that everything's okay. And you did say starting at the age of 45, correct? Yeah, so that's our um, relatively new guidelines. It came out a couple years ago, I believe, from American Cancer Society. Um, and then recently the GI societies have just backed that screening. And that's because we are seeing younger patients. So it used to be age 50, um, but now it's age 45. So now that everyone knows how old I am, um, I can totally attest, uh, Dr. Gold, that the um, uh, the worst part, and Allison, uh, bless you for having them as often as you have, uh, the worst part is the prep. Um, the best part is the anesthesia. Yeah. <laughs> because, because, I mean, you you wake up and it's over. And you yeah, you get driven home and it's over. Um, yeah. Right, Allison? I, I often tell people that the anesthesia and the sleep you get from that, even though it's probably like 15, 20 minutes, it's the best sleep I've ever gotten. <laughs> you know, they give you the meds and I'm always trying to fight it. I'm like, no, I'm going to stay awake. I'm going to stay awake just to be funny with um, the people doing it. And then, you know, I pass out, I wake up, I'm all good. I go home, you know, I have a, you know, light meal and, and recover. And and you're a hunter, like the biggest thing I get. So I've worked in community outreach as well. The biggest thing I get from people is, well, I don't want to do that colonoscopy. That prep is so bad. Well, yeah, it's not the greatest. I'm not going to lie. But there are so many things that I do to make it better. So, you know, first of all, I say, oh, it's just like I'm getting clean out. Everyone wants to lose a little bit of weight. Think of it as a cleanse. When you're doing it, you know, you're, you're cleaning yourself out. But also, like, when you have to have clear liquids, the, one of the funny, funniest things that I've heard from people is like, oh, I can just have soup. I'm like, no, yeah, you can have clear broth, but I also make myself jello. There's like frozen lemon ices that I eat that, that have, they probably have a lot of sugar. I'm sure they do, but <laughs> in case you feel like you're eating some food and, and also gummy bears, like not the red ones, but you can eat gummy bears. There's different things that, that I give like solutions that I give to people. I also like, you know, I say game, but I sort of make it a game. I hold my nose, I drink it, I, you know, and then I like watch a show. It's a really good opportunity to catch up 
on a Netflix show. As long as you're close to the bathroom, yes. you know, you give yourself a night that, you know, maybe again, if you have children, Hey, you can't be around them. I like to be away from people when I'm, um, when I'm um, prepping, <laughs> but there, you know, there's the, the large prep that you can do. There's so many different things that they've done, you know, sometimes, and, you know, Dr. Gould can, you know, talk about this. There's Miralax and Gatorade that some doctors prescribe as well. That's a little bit less, yeah, you know, it doesn't taste as bad, but also, you know, if you can't drink for some reason, I know there's a pill version that requires a lot of water and, and drinking, but, but I, 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 people come up to me and they're like, well, I don't want to get screened because I don't want to do that colonoscopy. And, and I'm like, well, a colonoscopy saved my life. So you should do it. And as soon as I say that, they're like, oh, okay. I don't think people realize that first of all, it can, that's, that's the gold standard of screening. All, all the other ones are important. So any screening, like Dr. Gold said, is, is important. But you have that colonoscopy if it's clean. That's 10 years, 10 years that you don't have to do anything again. So it's like two days of 10 years that could change the, you know, the trajectory of your life if it's positive or if it's negative. I mean, it, it is the easiest um, thing to ask. And there's, again, just like going to the bathroom, there's, there's so many you know, miss and it's taboo to, to do it. People just are like, oh, that prep is so horrible. Unless you've tried it. My dad does it. And he's like, this is no big deal. I don't like the taste <laughs> of it, but he drinks it. He's, it's, it's no big deal. Again, he sits by, you know, closer to a toilet and watches some TV. And, you know, you, I always would work when I was doing the clear liquid. So you get distracted by working. And um, yeah, I mean, it's not the most pleasant, but it is life saving. Yeah, and I was really concerned when my doctor said, "Hey, everything's great. We'll see. You know, you need another one of these for ten years because you know we're used to like, okay, mammograms are every year, and you know your prostate, your PSA, you know that's an every year deal." And I'm like, "Are you, are you sure? Ten years?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah. Unless you're unless you have symptoms, ten years." So you you're right, Allison. You trade. Uh, one day of a little, not even a full day, but uh, yeah. you know, one day of discomfort for a 10 year time frame where it's not like you have to, unless you do have symptoms and problems and there's another, you know, regular occurrence of, of, of uh, screenings, but for 10 years worth of not having to be screened, it's not a bad trade-off. And it doesn't hurt like that. People oh. you know, the prep is not the greatest, but people think, think maybe the, the test hurts, no pain you get the medicine, you go to sleep, even if you're like lightly sedated, you know, my, my, again, other people have heard that I need to get the anesthesia because I've woken up at one, once or twice, but like, I, you know, it doesn't hurt at all. Like there's no pain involved. If anything, you get to go home and someone can take care of you and you can, you know, milk it for everything and be like, Oh, you get me some water. Oh, you get me this or whatnot. So, you know, it, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, other, other tests, I'm going to say, like, I don't, I get my mammogram yearly because I have a history of, uh, of breast cancer and, um, and my family. So I get that yearly that hurts. I'm not, I, but I still do it. I still do it every time. Um, there's they don't, no, they don't knock you out for that. No, no unfortunately no. not. <laughs> so with, when you do a colonoscopy, is there benign findings also? Mm-hmm. So uh, yes, there are benign findings also. Um, so there's different kinds of polyps um, that we can find. Um, 
And so some polyps actually have no malignant potential. They're completely benign. Like they're called hyperplastic polyps. And when they're in the rectum and sigmoid, they will not um, progress to cancer. So if we see those and we know that they're what they are, we may not even take them out. Um, and then the other polyps that are more common are the adenomatous polyps, or maybe not more common, but the ones that you hear about. Those are the polyps that can progress to cancer. And that usually takes seven to 10 years, not all of them will progress to cancer, but that's why we have this 10 year window where you don't have to go, if you didn't have anything or you had small polyps, you may not have to go back for a while. Um, so that's what we're looking for. But the nice thing about a colonoscopy is if we see those polyps, we can take them out. So we're really preventing your risk of colon cancer. So the idea of a colonoscopy is to screen, um, but also to take out you know, pre-cancerous lesions that could become cancer later on. And the survival is greatly variable between a stage one person with colon cancer versus stage four. Um, and so that's why the idea is to really catch it early. Mm -hmm. Screening is key. That's one of the things that we preach at the foundation, uh, you know, screening and prevention. Th those are the, the two major, major keywords. So if you do find the precancerous um, polyps, how often do you have to get a colonoscopy then? So there's um, a, a guideline depending on how many and the size of the polyps that we use. Um, so we'll, you know, it will vary between one year to, um, if you have very small and only a couple, it could be seven to 10 years. Um, so we use criteria based on the type of polyp. There's adenomous polyps, but there's also um, sessile serrated polyps or large polyps. Um, then we may change the time. So it just kind of depends on the findings. Yeah. Allison, let's talk a little bit about your advocacy and let's talk about kind of some of the ways you are advocating uh, on behalf of survivors, which, you know, that's our audience. And I know some of our survivors are probably, you know, wanting to thank you for advocating at the national and regional level. Um, but let's talk about some of your advocacy and, and some of the ways you do that. I mean, it's crazy how I ended up doing, you know, getting into advocacy because um, I've always worked in cancer and I used to be relatively shy and Dr. Gould probably would laugh me saying that. But but once I started sharing my story, so the hospital I was treated at asked me to share my story. I did for the first time and I got so much positive feedback that I realized that, OK, well, I guess my story matters. It can help others. And I really got a lot of help from fellow survivors when I was first diagnosed. So. The first thing I asked when I went to my first appointment was, do you have another survivor that I can talk to that might help me throughout my journey? So that person talked to me. I don't even remember their name, but really that was the first time I had talked to someone else that had colorectal cancer because, again, I thought it was um, older men. That's what I thought. So when I talked to a younger woman that had survived and was thriving and living her life the fullest, I realized, okay, I can get through this. So once I got through it, I started wanting to connect with other survivors like myself. And I went to trusty Google and I said, colon cancer um, organizations in Houston, because that's where I live. And a group called the Colon Cancer Coalition, Get Your Rear Your Houston popped up. And I think it was like two weeks later, they were having a 5K race. Now I couldn't run at that point because I had just had um, surgery, but I could walk and all my friends and family wanted to do something for me. So I got everyone together, formed a team called Ali's Army, and we all went there and walked. And besides walking with the, you know my support system, I met 
I think that race had 20 plus other survivors there. So we all got to meet, we all got to talk each other, talk to each other and I connected with them. And, and now I think it's, you know, almost eight years later, I'm running this race in Houston because I love connecting with others and I love providing resources. So at this race, they have tables with different organizations and, and ways to get involved. And as, as I started telling my story more, more people reached out for me to do advocacy. And I just, I fell in love with it. I really did. You know, I made it, I was working in cancer research when I was diagnosed. So I sort of made it a career as well because I worked at, at Baylor where um, Milena is in our Office of Outreach and Health Disparities. So I got to do it in my everyday job and talk about the importance of screening. But then outside of work, I would tell anyone that would listen, I talk about the importance of screening. And because I didn't know that you could get it younger, that females could get it as well. It could be prevented and there were screening options. So I just started talking more. And, and because I had a background in research, I'm, I do research advocacy with different groups where you know, we give the patient perspective. So every research grant or every researcher, you know, they're amazing and they're creating new ways to detect new treatment options, but also having that patient voice as a part of the process. So I've done that. Policy is just a no-brainer for me because if we can change um, the way that, you know, maybe the insurance companies cover colorectal cancer or um, like having a patient story when you're talking about a policy change is huge because you can have someone again say, well, this is important because blah, blah, blah. And you need that. You need that scientific information. But then you also have someone that comes and says, I got this screening and if it had not been covered and I had to pay thousands of dollars, I don't know if I would have been, I would have gone and taken it and or if I would tell other people to take it. So really having the patient voice is, is sort of where I, I stand. And anytime anyone needs me, I will, I will, you know, rise to the occasion. So anyone that wants to get involved, tell their story wherever they were treated, reach out to the office of communications wherever you were treated. Because patient stories are really the the I feel like the backbone of advocacy, you have to have the patient voice represented in the patient story and everybody's different. We need males, we need females, we need all ages, all ethnicities. So I, you know, I do research advocacy, I do policy advocacy, and then social media is huge for me. Um, I connected with a lot of other survivors when I was going through my treatment through Instagram, through Facebook, through Twitter, through so many different platforms. And and it just is like a community that I didn't know I needed, but we call we call each other our blue family now. Like really, I have friends in Puerto Rico, like all over the world. That at any given time, if I'm if I if I need something, I'll be like, hey, do you know about this? Hey, do you know about this? And I get like fifty plus, uh, probably sometimes hundreds of answers. So in the, in the process of doing the advocacy and reaching out to these people, then we've just created this community of of like powerful advocates that we can make any sort of change that we possibly want to. And so I tell my story, I talk about opportunities and the people that aren't in this blue community that might not know that screening is important or that you need to get it at a certain age or that you can get it at any age. Those are the people that like when I tell my story or I post things on Facebook or Instagram, I get lots of questions. Um, one of my friends from college said she saw blood in, this, in her stool and she said she was too busy to get a screening because um, she had to take her kids to school and like you said, ballet and all this other stuff. And I said, listen, um, you want to continue to take your kids to school and ballet and, and see them graduate. Go, please go talk to a doctor. She had precancerous polyps. 
She didn't have cancer, thank goodness, but she had precancerous polyps. And so she gets screened regularly now. And so really, if I can help save one life or help, you know, have one person understand the importance of screening and that colorectal cancer isn't taboo, I'll do it. And COVID was interesting because we were all stuck at home. And when that was around the time that the um, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force changed the age of screening to 45, and I knew that was a great opportunity to try to reach, you know, that 45 to 50, but also those younger people. And one of my friends suggested I get on TikTok because I love to dance. And I was like, oh, I don't know. It just seems like a weird platform. You're only like 15 seconds. How can you get information out there on TikTok about colorectal cancer? So one night I was bored because I, I, I literally, you know, hunkered down and didn't do much for the first few months of COVID um, because I was scared. I'm higher risk. Right. So I got on TikTok, I became obsessed watching it and I, I posted posted my first video and and it went viral. And so that was almost two and a half years ago. And so I post on TikTok about colorectal cancer. I will wear a poop emoji costume. I'll wear a poop emoji hat. I will dance and shake my booty. I had a, they actually, you know, banned one of mine because I had a fake butt on and they thought it was a real butt, which is, which is hilarious. <laughs> you know, I, I yeah. said, to get banned for that with everything else that's out there. Right, right. So um, there's a community on TikTok that I had no idea would be receptive, but they are. So thousands of people, I mean, I don't want to say I get thousands of questions a day, but I get quite a few questions a day um, about the importance of screening because I talk about symptoms. I talk about different things I went through psychologically, you know, physically, um, and there's a, there's a niche of like a cancer community on there. I also have an ostomy. I have a permanent ostomy now, which essentially I don't have a colon anymore. So I've connected with ostomates and, and I'll let Milena sort of explain the scientific or the, the, what, what exactly an ostomy is. But if you want support, there is support out there. So I do the advocacy to help people understand that there is support, but also like I, I take what is, you know, maybe a little bit more complicated and I, I, I make it so that everyone can understand it. Um, and I always say blood in your stool is not cool. That's like a big line of mine that I say. Well, you, you do a, a fantastic job of, and maybe this isn't the right word of, of, of describing, but, but normalizing that discussion and those, the, 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 the words and the symptoms and things like that to where it's not you know, as you said, taboo and the fact that it's, you know, you are, I mean, it's the, it's the, the right demographic to be on TikTok. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 younger people, like a lot of times they get questions saying, wait, I didn't know that you'd be, I mean, exactly what you would get in normal, but like you're reaching all over the world. I have people in South Africa um, and England and Scotland, I mean, just all over that are like, wait a second, I, I didn't know like what, you know, I'll do a TikTok, then I get a lot of like sort of residual questions. And then you answer them by making another TikTok or talking to them privately. And again, I, I said when I started, if I could help one person, that I would continue to do it. And I know um, that I've helped quite a few people by, you know, being silly, putting that that poop emoji costume on um, and, and talking about it. Because again, it's not taboo to me and it shouldn't be taboo to anybody. And I want to remind people, like, that's all we talk about all day in my office, you know, so it's not taboo to us. And I know it's hard sometimes for you to come, but that's all we do. And the same thing for colonoscopies. I know it seems weird, but 
on the day that I'm not in clinic talking about poop and things like that, then I'm scoping. And so that's my life day in and day out. And it's sort of normal for us. So, you know, don't be shy. We, we're here to help you. Now, Allison, you mentioned about an ostomy. Was that hard for you to find support at first being so young? I mean, I had no idea what an ostomy really was. I just knew it was an external bag that my poop would go into, essentially, is, is you know, the an unscientific term. Um, I, I was very much like I didn't want something external. I didn't want people to be able to see that anything was wrong with me because, you know, I, I was young and I was like, I, body image was was important. So when I first got it and I had to have one permanently, um, I again went to Google and found there's United Ostomy Associations of America. There's a Houston Ostomy Association. Um, and so I started getting active in those groups and um, Houston, is so big that we have four different support groups locally. Um, we used to meet in person with COVID, it's now virtual, but the attendance has gone up. So I, again, asked to talk to an ostomate so I'd better understand different things that could I dress normal? Could I go swimming? I had all these questions. I thought I couldn't do normal things. Let me tell you, I do everything I did before and more. I went skydiving a few years ago with my ostomy and someone was like, wait, you can go skydiving? I'm like, yeah, I asked my doctor to double check that it was okay. I can do everything. I can travel. And, and truthfully, my life is better now. I don't have to worry about where a bathroom is. Um, and, and, and you can't tell I have an ostomy. I go in, and I talk to patients um, in the hospital, I'm part of an ostomy support team. I specifically wear maybe, you know, a tighter dress or leggings or whatnot, because I thought I'd be carrying around this bag for the rest of my life and people would know and people would smell me None of that is true. I think there's more myths about um, ostomies than maybe, you know, than so many other things. And so I try to break those myths. And the first time I showed my ostomy to anyone other than like my, some of my friends and family was on TikTok, which is, which is crazy because I was very nervous about it. And that's one that got, I think 20, 20, 30,000 um, people looking at it. So I'm like, okay, well, if, if they're okay with it, um, then I'm okay with it. So it's, it's a process, you know, I'm not going to say you get an ostomy. You're like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. It took a while for me to accept my body and accept this ostomy. And, and once I realized that it gave me the freedom to live my life to the fullest, um, then I started to accept that ostomy and, and love my body again. And, and then the advocacy started with that because there's so much support out there. There's United Ostomy Associations of America is huge. So anywhere you live, you can connect with another ostomate. You can connect with a support group. And there are resources out there that give you all the information about what you can eat, what you can't eat, how you can dress, which is normal. Um, and all the things that, you, that people sort of think are not true about an ostomy, they, they break that stigma and, um, and show people like me, we tell our stories. And there's a couple of things there to really uh bring home to some of our survivors. One is uh, Allison talked a lot about mentors and being a mentor and having a mentor. And, you know, that's one of the things, of course, here in the Panhandle, we're a little smaller than Houston. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we do have access to a mentor program. I think um, one of the first five or so podcasts we did was with our folks that are uh, with the Fourth Angel program. And we work with the Fourth Angel to provide um, it's free um, to provide a mentor and they match you up somewhere, you know, worldwide potentially. 
um, with someone both uh, from your stage and type and demographic and and age and so forth. And it, and they really do a good job of, of matching you up. And then it's up to you and your mentor how often or how you communicate. But then also for survivors to do just as what Allison's doing is becoming a mentor for other people. Um, you know, just as you said about stories, that's the other thing is talk about your story matters. And it is, it's your story. Um, we always go back, right, Pam, to uh, when we had Ethan Zahn from Survivor come and speak at our Survivor um, celebration, and he said that one of the cards, I think it was his mother gave him, said, um, a bird doesn't sing uh, because it knows the answers, a bird sings because it has a song, and he was like, this is your song, you should sing your song, and so that's why we encourage all of our survivors to tell their story, uh, because you do, you don't know when whoever hears it it makes a connection and all of a sudden now you've changed a life because they went and got screened or they kind of had that symptom or they're struggling with the same uh, type of, of, of symptoms or same problems. And you have, by sharing your story, have made a life change and, and a connection. Yeah. So and incredible it's, it's huge. Like giving, I always say for me, giving back and, and helping others has, continues to help me heal. It's a continuous healing process. Um, because even though I'm, I'm cancer free, I still deal with survivorship, long-term issues related to my treatment and, and the cancer and whatnot. So helping others continues to help me heal and just makes me feel better and gives me purpose. Um, really, the, like after cancer, I was like, okay, what do I do with the rest of my life? I, I wasn't necessarily as fulfilled with my job. And, and now I, I love what I do for a living, which is helping others like this. And then I love the advocacy, um, which is sharing my story and, and talking um, about the importance of screening and, and, and helping others. It's, it's truly rewarding being able to share and, and help others. So it was a no brainer for me to like, okay, well, what can I do now? Someone help me. Let me help them. Let me help someone else. And Allison's also, um, come to speak to our second year med students at Baylor, as well as our fellows, um, which I think is great because, you know, we see patients, but I don't think sometimes you totally appreciate the full story or she gives us perspective that we don't always think about. So that's also something else she does that's really been very beneficial, I think, for both our students and our fellows, which is we're lucky to have her. That's, a, that's an awesome piece right there, because I think as a physician, right, you're focused on this physician, this patient, and the next patient, and the next patient, and the next phone call, and the next refill, or whatever it may be, um, which is why we have what we have here at the center, Pam, where we come alongside survivors, and we come alongside the physicians who are fantastic at treating cancer, um, but maybe can't offer a counseling uh, program, or maybe don't have a wellness program, don't have access to a pool like we do. So we offer water exercise, you know, all the things that we do, it's not to replace the physician, it's to come alongside and, and provide those extra uh, little bonus things as you're going through your treatment. And then when you're finished with your treatment, and oh, by the way, Pam, what does it cost? Nothing. Nothing. It's <laughs> absolutely, absolutely free. Um we're, we're so lucky, especially even to have Whitney and do all the programs that we do on healthy eating and so forth. Um, it, we're, we're blessed to be able to do what we do and, and touch the lives of cancer survivors here locally. So uh, before we get to our last little segment, um, which, which we always love to have our Pete's Powerful Moment, Allison, tell our listeners, where can they find you on TikTok, on Instagram? How can they reach out to you? Um, really, if they Google Allison Rosen colorectal cancer, I should pop up. But on Instagram, I'm Allie Cat 380. 
um, A-L-I-C-A-T-380 on Facebook. I'm Alleycat380 on, on Twitter. I'm A-Rosen380 on TikTok. I'm AllisonRosen04. So if you want to find me, you will find me. And I'm always happy to talk to anyone and everyone about any sort of questions they might have. You know, I know you guys have amazing resources, but if there's something that they have a question about that I can point them in the right direction, I'm happy to do that because I know I know a lot, but I don't know everything. So um, I'm always happy and love to connect with others. Absolutely. We, we appreciate both of you being on our podcast, but um, we don't want to leave just yet. We like to leave our listeners with the Pete's Powerful Moment. We are sponsored by Pete's CarSmart Kia. Do, would y'all like to share your Pete's powerful moment? Trying to think there's been so many powerful moments for me, but I think, um, the first time I told my story, um, and I started crying because it was the first time I told my story, started crying. And then I, you know, composed myself and then I continued telling it. And then I ended, it was about an hour or so. And I was talking to some physicians, um, and healthcare providers, Um, when someone came up to me afterwards, gave me a huge hug, started crying as well and said that their, their, their father had passed away from colorectal cancer. And they just thanked me so much for sharing my story. I think that sort of solidified the fact that what I was doing was important and I would continue to do it. And it didn't matter if I cried, um, that was real. And that came from, from the heart and the fact that I could touch this person and, you know, have this moment where we both cried together about, you know, loss, you know, love and, and, and cancer was super, super powerful for me. Um, for me, my grandmother died of colon cancer. And I think her diagnosis sort of influenced my decision to go into GI. And so I feel lucky that I can make a difference in other people's lives. Oh, yeah. Pam, uh, both extremely powerful moments, um, both driven out of scenarios that no one chose and no one wants to choose or wants to be there. And these two powerful ladies are making really great impact uh, in the world. And uh, you're making a huge difference. We can't thank you guys enough for for what you do every day, but for also sharing from the heart and sharing uh, your stories and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Um, I know for one, um, I learned quite a bit. I hope that our listeners did as well. As always, Pam, we leave them with homework. Uh, Can I do that? Yeah, let's let's do that. Leave them with some homework, Pam. Okay, if you're 45 and listening <laughs> to this, you call the GI doctor and ask for a screening colonoscopy. Yes. If you haven't had one within the last 10 years, um, call. Um, yeah. It's important. Early screening, early detection is important. And as always, and um, I like, subscribe, share this podcast with those that um, you love. And um, chances are, Pam, you think about this. I mean, as a survivor listening, they've got maybe have a caregiver, a loved one who falls into that category of 45 or older. Um, It's important then for you as a, as a survivor to kind of maybe a swift kick in the rear and say, Hey, (laughs) you're up. I mean, <laughs> it's time. Let's go and make maybe even make the appointment for your spouse. I know that uh, maybe sometimes, um, especially those of a more testosterone uh, <laughs> sex, may be less inclined to making that appointment. I think uh, so. You, you ladies, feel free to make that appointment for your husband. 
<laughs> I'll just throw that out there. Yeah. But thank you guys for listening. Thank you for sharing our podcast and be sure to join us next week for another great episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.